for the uh, third time in the last uh, couple of years that I can remember, I just popped another button off my blazer. Uh, that's uncanny. This never happens to me any other time than on Sunday morning. So I don't know if there's any uh, lesson in this or not, but if anybody has any blue thread, I'll try to uh, repair it before the next service. Would you turn with me, please, to the seventh chapter of John, John chapter 7. We want to talk this morning about the way to get the Spirit, which is, a, I think, a very important topic. It's one that uh, is on a lot of people's minds, particularly in terms of ministry to others. I think all of us have a, a, a heartfelt desire to do something redemptive and significant in the world. We, we want to help people. We want to see people changed. But very often our best laid plans gay a glee. We just can't seem to, to help people the way we want to. As a matter of fact, our efforts to help often turn out to be very harmful. Uh, I have a friend who set out to repair his wife's uh, oven some years ago, and uh, uh, he saw a loose wire hanging down as he was working on the project and clipped it off, thinking that it was just in the way. And the next time she put a roast in the oven, she incinerated it because what he had clipped off was the thermostat. Now, uh, his intentions were wholly good, but uh, it didn't turn out to be too redemptive. I tried to repair the shower door the other day, and uh, Carolyn opened it up, and it fell on her foot. Uh, my intentions were perfectly good, but uh, uh, what I did was not uh, too helpful. One of my favorite stories, which I think I've told here before, concerns the man who came to call on a friend of his who had had a mild heart attack and uh, had put him under a, an oxygen tent, and he was recovering quite well. And uh, his friend was standing there beside the bed talking to him, and the friend under the tent began to experience some distress and pull at his pajama top and, and cough, and obviously he was having a very difficult time. And, and he said, John, what's wrong? And and, and he made some signs that he wanted a piece of paper and a pencil, and he passed a pad and a pencil to him. And he scribbled a note on the pad and, and passed it under, to, under the tent to him, and he looked at it, and it said, Please, George, get your foot off the hose. <laughs> uh, uh, that illustrates beautifully our, our efforts to try to help. Here we are trying to minister to someone, and we have our foot on the hose. Well, uh, how, how do we go about correcting that sort of thing? How do we give help to others? How do we experience the fullness of the Spirit of God ourselves so that we can, can do something redemptive and positive? That's, that's the thrust of this particular message. Now, this text is very difficult to teach on because behind it uh, is a, a great deal of culture and background. Uh, Jewish liturgy and worship come into play, and it's very hard to explain it without explaining a lot of other things. And I don't know how much explanation to give because I don't want to bore you to death. But in order to understand what's going on, you have to understand something in the background. So uh, if I get too, uh, too historical, uh, please let me know. Don't go to sleep. Just raise your hand, and I'll move on to the next topic, all right? Now, let's look at John 7. The, this chapter revolves around two discourses by Jesus two times when he taught. He taught in the middle of the week, and then he taught at the end of the week, the last day, the great day of the feast. 
It's obvious that John has structured the chapter around these two discourses because you have a discourse, a discussion that takes place within the crowd and with Jesus, and then you have a reaction. And uh, the, the point that John is making, it's very clear as you read through this chapter and on into the rest of, of the Gospel of John, is that there were only two possible reactions to Jesus. Either you believe him or you don't. If you don't believe him, it's because you think he's a liar or he's, a, uh, or he's, he's crazy. He's a lunatic. There really are no other options. As C.S. Lewis put it, when you read the Gospels, you come to one of three conclusions. Either Jesus is a deceiver, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg. Or he's the Lord of glory himself. He says, let's not have any of this nonsense about Jesus being a merely good man. The facts will not admit that. Now, he's right, you see. Those who disbelieved him came to the conclusion that he was either lying to them, he was leading the people astray, he was a deceiver, or he was crazy. Or they saw him as the Lord of glory and they believed in him. There are no other options. What John is doing in chapter 7 and the chapters that follow is tracing these two lines, lines of belief and unbelief. Now, last week we looked at the first discourse where the issue had to do with Jesus' authority. By what right could he speak as he did? What authority does he have to speak? Well, he said, I didn't get my teaching from the rabbis. I got it from God himself. I got it directly from the Father who sent me. And then in verses 25 and following, there is a discussion. I'm going to read these verses and just comment briefly because I want to move on to chapter 37, verses 37 and 38, which are the center of this discourse. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, I'm reading verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is Christ. This is the Messiah, do they? The clergy was indecisive, they said. They, they don't know what, how, to, how to handle this man. Perhaps they think he's the Messiah. That's why they're unwilling to, to seize him, to arrest him. However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. The multitude knew more about Messiah than the rabbis thought. We'll find out later that the, the clergy, the leadership, the official leadership, uh, were very disdainful of the Jews. They, they, were, they were just a motley mob as far as the leadership was concerned. They have no understanding of spiritual things. Actually, they understood quite, uh, quite a bit. They uh, knew on the basis of the book of Malachi, and they had been taught by the rabbis, that Messiah would come suddenly to his temple. Malachi says that. He refers to Messiah as his messenger. In fact, the word Malachi is our English form of the Hebrew word Malachi. It means my messenger, the Messiah. He will come, and he'll come suddenly, Malachi says, to his temple. He'll come out of nowhere, in other words. He'll just appear. Well, that's what Jesus did. Remember, he came down to Jerusalem covertly. They didn't know he was there. Suddenly, he began to teach in the temple. Out of nowhere, he came, you see. Now, uh, he was fulfilling this prediction in Malachi, but they misunderstood the prediction. They thought that he would just appear suddenly without any origins. And they said, we know where this man comes from. He was raised in Nazareth. Now listen to what Jesus says, verse 28. The crowd was dispersing. So Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from. This is irony. You think you know me, and you think you know where I'm from, from Nazareth. 
But I have not come of myself, but he who, uh, he who sent me is true whom you do not know. But I know him because I am from him and, and he sent me. Now listen to that. What audacity. He says to the most religious people on the face of the earth who had come hundreds of miles to a pilgrimage to, uh, to show their reverence for God. You don't know God, he said. But I do. I do. As a matter of fact, I came from God. He sent me. Well, this uh, Torah, as far as the clergy was concerned, therefore, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. He was immortal until his work was done. No one could touch him. It's true of two, you too as well and, and of me. Uh, no one can touch us. Death cannot touch us. Until God is through with the work that he's doing in us and the work he's going to do through us. So we don't need to fear death. It's true of our Lord. No one could arrest him until his work was done. And many of the multitude believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more miracles or signs than those which this man has. Will he? The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering, this low discussion we were talking about. They were, they were afraid to talk about it openly, but in little groups they were gathering to discuss who Jesus was. They were muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the, to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said? You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Jesus is talking about his death. I'm going someplace where you cannot come at the present. You have no access to uh, my father's house at, 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 the, at the present time. I'm, I'm going. They say, well, where is he going? Is he going to the dispersion? Is he going to go out into the outlying regions of the Roman Empire and, and preach to the Greeks? Well, as a matter of fact, he was. This is an unwitting prophecy. It's precisely where he was going, through his church, to proclaim the gospel to the Greeks. But before either Jews or Greeks could, uh, could come to Christ, he had to go and prepare a place for them. He had to go through the cross. Because there isn't any coming to the Father except through the cross. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, I used to read uh, the statement in John 14. We're going to talk about that in a, in a few weeks. Jesus says, uh, I, I go to prepare a place for you. That is heaven. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, I always pictured in my mind as a child, uh, the Lord in a carpenter's apron with a hammer and a saw building a house for us in heaven but when jesus says i'm going to prepare a place for you he's not talking about his going to heaven to build a house he's talking about the cross that's how he prepared a place for us it was through the cross that we have access to the father now jesus says to this group of people you you don't have access to where to the place where i'm going yet because you don't believe in me you haven't put your faith in the trust, uh, in, your, in the cross, in the sacrifice which I will make for your sins that will enable the Father to forgive so you have access to him. And once the cross takes place, then not only you Jews, but the Greeks as well will have access. That's us. We got in. 
Because Jesus prepared a place for us. Now, we come to the heart of the passage, verse 37. Now, this is the second discourse which occurred on the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being, innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That is, he had not yet gone to the cross. That was his glory. Now, uh, let me try to explain what was happening in, in Israel. And something of, their, uh, of the liturgy that surrounded this, uh, this Feast of Tabernacles in which this dialogue is, is set. As I mentioned before, the Feast of Tabernacles was a way of remembering their experience in the wilderness. They built little booths out of, uh, out of leaves and branches, and they lived in them for a week. Pilgrims came from all over the Roman world, from Mesopotamia off in the, to the east, way up north uh, in what would be Iran today, off to the west among the, uh, from the islands of the Greeks and from Europe. Jews came from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. There would literally be millions of people there on that, for that week. It was the most popular of all the feasts. It was the holiest feast of all in, in Jewish thinking at that time. It was, a, it was a harvest festival. It was in the autumn. It was cooling down. Work was done in the fields, and uh, they gathered from all over uh, to live in Jerusalem for a week and remember the time when they tented in the wilderness and when God lived in a tent in, in their midst, in the midst of the camp. And uh, there were various sacrifices and worship services during the week. And they would gather in the temple and they would hear the psalms sung and chanted and, and uh, there would be reading of scripture and the priests would expound upon the scriptures. And uh, throughout the whole week, there was, uh, it was a very festive occasion, a time of worship as well as a time of, of fellowship with one another. But on the last day, which was called the great day of the feast, something special happened. Why it was called the great day of the feast. Everything led up to this last day. Very early in the morning, on the last day of the feast, they would leave their little tents, their little booths, and uh, they would go down into the swampy area to the south of Jerusalem, and they would gather palm branches and myrtle branches and, and leaves of various type, and they would carry these in their hands, and they would march in procession through the city, and all of the pilgrims would uh, would line up, and they would proceed in a in a, a, a procession up to the temple. On the way, they would go by the pool of Siloam, which was down south of the temple, just a few hundred yards at the base of the old city of David. And uh, the priest had a pitcher that's so big, silver pitcher, and he would fill it full of water. And then he would carry that pitcher up to the temple. And the people would follow him in, in procession. And when, do they, when they came to the temple, they would sacrifice an animal on the altar. Actually, there were several sacrifices that would take place. The, the descriptions of this period are a little bit vague. 
All the descriptions come a bit later, but uh, it's generally agreed that a number of sacrifices took place. They sacrificed lambs on the altar. And after the sacrifices were over, the priest would take the pitcher and he would pour water from the pitcher into a silver funnel that was uh, fixed uh, to the side of the, of the altar. And the water would flow down into the funnel and would trickle out under the altar across the pavement stones of the temple down toward the, the east gate. Now, there, there was, there was uh, rich meaning in that symbol. It doesn't mean anything to us. But to the Jews, it evoked two pictures, one looking back and one looking forward. It looked back to the time when God miraculously supplied water in the wilderness. You know the story. It's told in Numbers 20. They came into the wilderness and they didn't have any uh, water. And Moses was told by God to speak to the rock and the rock would gush forth water Moses took matters into his own hands and he struck the rock with the rod. He wasn't intended to strike the rock because uh, Paul tells us that rock symbolized Christ. And Christ could only be struck once. You You didn't have to die but once. All Moses had to do was speak to the rock and the water would pour out. The, uh, some of the writers in referring back, one of the psalmists and, uh, And Moses himself in Deuteronomy mentions that the rock was flint rock. It's one thing for water to pour out of of sandstone. You would expect that. But this was a hard, non-porous flint rock. It was a great miracle. Out of this rock poured a copious supply of water that uh, that satisfied the thirst of two and a half million people. That was the supply that came from the rock. Now, uh, in, in, in the minds of these Jews, as they gathered around the altar, that's what they were thinking as the water poured out of this pitcher. They remembered how God poured water out of the rock and, and satisfied their thirst. But this symbol also had significance for the future. And in order to understand, I'd like to have you turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Joel in the Old Testament. Now, uh, Joel is a little bit hard to find. Uh, it is in that little group of books at the end of uh, the end of the Old Testament that we call the Minor Prophets. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it's page twelve seventy six. If you don't have a New American Standard, if you can find Isaiah, you too far to the left. Just keep turning to the right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. It comes right after Hosea. Okay? I say that because I know that a lot of you are new to the Christian faith. Some of you are not yet Christians. And you don't know how to find your way around the Bible. It will come in time. Don't worry about it. But uh, we want you to, to, to find the passage and look at it. Joel 2. All right, you have it? Now stick with me, okay? I know it's early Sunday morning and you've had a busy weekend and you're all looking sleepy. And I probably ought to tell a funny story or something at this point to wake you up, but I don't have one, so I just listen, okay? Joel 2. Joel uh, is an undateable prophet. We really don't have any idea when Joel wrote. I think probably about 800 years before Christ, but we don't know. It's very difficult to place this this book in its, in its historic setting. But Joel's concern 
was about the day of the Lord, that time when God would intervene. Uh, God is letting history roll on. He's letting men do as they please. He's taking his hands basically off of us, letting us reap what we sow. But one of these days, he's going to enter into history, Joel says. And that's what he calls the day of the Lord. Now, I'm reading verse 28 of chapter 2, Joel 2, 28. It will come about after this. Now, that little phrase, after this, is more than just a time marker. To the Jews, it came to be a technical phrase that referred to the Messianic era. When Peter quotes Joel 2 in the book of Acts, he says, he quotes the first part of it right off the Hebrew text, and it will come about, but he doesn't say after this. Remember what he said? It will come about in the last days. Now, that's the way they understood this, this phrase. It is a reference to the Messianic era. Now, the last days is not some far-off period just before the second coming of the Lord. The last days is the period between the first and second comings of the Lord. We are living in the last days. You understand that? Uh, Hebrews begins this way. God, who spoke in various ways to the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. And and uh, Peter says, uh, and it will come about in the last days that God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. He says, this that you see is that. This is it. This is the last days, you see. <clears throat> so, when Joel... Uh, refers to something that will come about after this. He's talking about the Messianic era. In other words, Messiah will do this. You understand? When Messiah comes, he will do this. Every Jew understood this passage this way. I'm not reading this into it. This is the way the rabbis understood the passage. And it will come about in the last days, or after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. That's the new thing. Back in the book of Numbers, there's a story told about two men whose names were Eldad and Medad. Love those names. If I had two more kids, I might name them Eldad and Medad. <laughs> Who uh, uh, began to prophesy. Now, Moses was the prophet in those days. All revelation came through Moses. Here were two men in the camp, unknown men, who began to prophesy. And uh, uh, some people, concerned about Moses' reputation, ran to him and said, Moses! Eldad and Medad are prophesying. You know what Moses said? He said, oh, I wish all of God's people would prophesy. Now, that actually became an expectation in Israel. That not just the prophets, but that everyone would have the Spirit of God, would have direct access to God, would be filled with the Spirit and empowered by Him. That became their yearning and longing. And Joel picks up that expectation. And he says that in the last days, in the Messianic era, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Not just men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Joel, but upon all flesh. And, and then to, to further elaborate, he says your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Those were the acceptable mediums for prophecy in those days. Prophecy came through dreams and visions. And even on male and female servants, the lowest caste from the top to the bottom, or the bottom to the top, depending on how you rate society, they will, they will all prophesy. Everyone will be filled with the Spirit. That's what he's saying. 
And uh, I will pour out my spirit on those days. And then if you skip down to verse 32, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. And they waited and they waited and they waited for that to happen. They knew because God had promised that someday God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Everyone would be filled with the Spirit and would, uh, and would be empowered by Him. And they kept waiting for that to happen. And this pouring out of water into the altar and it flowing out uh, under the altar, you see, was a, was a reminder. Someday it's going to happen. It's going to happen one of these days. Now, of course, looking back, we know precisely what happened. Jesus went to the cross, to the altar, the place of sacrifice, and he gave up his life. He was raised from the dead. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he poured out the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. That's what the day of Pentecost is. Peter said, this one whom you crucified has poured forth this which you now see. And here, after the altar, came the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You see? It's rich symbolism. It's embodied in, in Israel's worship. Now, uh, let's turn back to John 7 again. We'll be looking back at the Old Testament uh, once more in a moment. But let's go back to our story in, in uh, John 7 and, and pick up their worship at, at that point. The, the priest would lift up the pitcher and he would pour out the water. And as he poured it out, the people would shout, Hosanna! Now, Hosanna is a, an English, uh, actually a corruption of the Hebrew word, actually two words, Hoshia Na, Hoshia Na, which means save, please. And uh, to a Jew at that time, to save meant to send, send the Messiah. Send the one that we're looking for who's going to pour out the Holy Spirit. It was a prayer. The whole group of pilgrims, two million perhaps, would shout at once, Hosanna, Hoshana, save now, send Messiah. And then they would chant together, we're told, uh, the Hallel Psalms, starting with uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They're called Hallel Psalms because Hallel is a Hebrew word for praise. They're praise psalms. And that idea of uh, hallelujah, praising Yah, praising the Lord, occurs over and over in these psalms. Now, I want to read for you. You don't need to turn unless you'd like to, to Psalm 118, to the passage, the last words that would be chanted. The choir would lead the congregation in worship. They memorized these psalms, as you know. They knew the psalms by heart. And these are the last words that they would chant. The king is speaking. They, these are words that are put into the mouth of the king who represents the Messiah. The, the psalm begins by uh, describing the, the king's anguish over the fact that uh, he'd been rejected. His enemies had surrounded him. And he was having a hard time. But uh, the Lord saved him. The Lord is for me among those who help me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. He says, all nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord I will cut them off. Then in verse 22, or pardon me, verse 19. 
open. Now, this is the king speaking. And, and Jews would put this in the mouth of Messiah because what the king said was a foretaste of what Messiah would say. If you read uh, through the New Testament, you'll see the Psalms are used that way over and over again. They're put into the mouth of, Je- mouth of Jesus. And that's what the Jews would do. They realized that the king simply, the earthly king simply represented the one who was to come. The king, the anointed one of God who would, who would set things right. And the king prays in verse 19. Now just picture these people around the altar, uttering this prayer. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected, and that's the king, the Messiah, has become the chief cornerstone. If you remember, Peter quotes that passage. And applies it directly to Jesus. The stone which the builders rejected, they put him to death. But that stone has become the chief cornerstone. This is from the Lord, he says. This is a miracle in our eyes. Only the Lord could overthrow the efforts of men to undo God's effort to bring God's work to bring salvation to the world. It's a miracle that the stone which was rejected has become the, the capstone. He raised him from the dead. This is the Lord's doing. It's miraculous. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We quote that very often about every day, but in its original setting, it referred to the day of salvation. This day, when the, one, the, when the stone that was rejected becomes the capstone, that day is the day of rejoicing. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, send prosperity. In other words, send the Messiah. Do save. Send the Messiah. This great cry went up. And we're told that when they finished chanting Psalm 118, there was a great silence that would fall upon the community. A great salah. A time of meditation and reflection upon these words. They would pray for the coming of the Messiah who would pour out the Spirit upon them. And when they came to this point in the liturgy, Jesus cried out, If any man is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Can you put yourself in that setting? Can you stand there with that great crowd as they cry out, Lord, save us in salvation. Send the Messiah. Send the Spirit that's promised. And Jesus stood up in the midst of that silence that followed and said, If any man is thirsty, come to me and drink. Now my question is, what do you thirst for? The Israel of that day thirsted for a, for a kingdom, an earthly kingdom. They thirsted for significance and worth and security. And basically, that's what we thirst for. Down underneath are all these hungers and longings. Thirst is a good word because thirst is one of those driving forces in our life which, when unmet, eclipses everything else. We long for meaning. We long for worth. We long for significance. 
We think we long for a family, or we long for children, or we long for marriage, or we long for sex, but but really what we long for is God himself and the significance that he can give. And Jesus says to us what he said to that crowd, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And when you do, he says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit who will reside in your innermost being and will become a well of water springing up to eternal life, as he said to the woman in Samaria. It'll fulfill you, and it'll become a source of blessing to others. It will flow out of your innermost being, and people will be enriched and blessed wherever you go. Carolyn was talking this past week to a young woman who is not yet a believer, and uh, she just asked the innocent question, how are you doing? And and this lady said, well, I'm doing okay, I guess. And, and uh, Carolyn picked up on it. She said, what, you, is there something wrong? And she said, well, yeah. She said, I, I'm struggling in my family. I'm having a hard time in my marriage. And Carolyn said, can you tell me about it? And she said, well, uh, I, I'm married to a very good man. He's a very kind man. But things are just not right And this Carolyn asked some other questions. It came out that uh, this young lady had a desire to go to church, and her husband wouldn't go with her. And she didn't want to go without him. So Carolyn said, you know, you, you think you're hungering to go to church, but that's really not what you're longing for. What you've discovered is what everyone discovers soon, sooner or later, that getting married won't satisfy you, having children won't satisfy you. Having an occupation that's fulfilling won't satisfy you. Having a great deal of money won't satisfy you. And religion won't satisfy you either. Just going to church is not, is not going to meet your need. What you're looking for is God. His Son, the Lord Jesus. And that's what the Lord says to us this morning. What, what do you thirst for? He meets that thirst. And not only does He satisfy our thirst, but he gives us resources to satisfy the thirst of others. Now, this is an unequivocal promise. John does not say that he gives the Holy Spirit to those who, who obey Christ in all of his teachings. He doesn't say he gives the Spirit to those who are baptized only. He doesn't say he gives the Spirit to those who can speak in tongues. Or that he gives the Spirit to those who who share Christ every day. He gives the Spirit to those who believe. It's the only qualification. If you believe on Him, these are all present tense verbs, if you keep on believing in Him, He keeps on supplying. And it becomes in us a well of water springing up, a spring that is never extinguished, never runs dry, always satisfies. Now the reaction to this follows... And uh, our time is gone. Let me merely say that, that the multitude was divided. They could not make up their mind about Jesus. Nor could the officials. It's an interesting statement. In, in uh, the last part of the chapter, the, the, one of the, the teachers, one of the rabbis, says to the temple guards who were unable to seize Jesus, none of the, of the important people of Israel, have believed in them, have they? 
And uh, John inserts in the the story at that point the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus came forward. Though he's a little timid and a little uncertain, it's obvious that Nicodemus was a believer. So right in the midst of official uh, Judaism, here's one who, who was highly regarded. He's described in John 3 as a great scholar, one of their most revered rabbis, but he loved the Lord Jesus, you see. So you have these two, these two responses. Some believed, some did not. Those who believed received the Holy Spirit. Now I want to conclude with the illustration that Ezekiel uses in in the Old Testament. I was going to read it, but I've taken too much time. And if you'll just allow me about two or three minutes, let me tell you what Ezekiel saw. Ezekiel had a vision. Now, most of us know that about the wheels. Ezekiel saw the wheels way up in the middle of the air. But uh, that wasn't the only vision he saw. He saw the city of God. Now, for myself, I don't think that Ezekiel saw anything that we'll ever see. He's not talking about walls made out of stone and and partition of, of the land as it's described in Ezekiel. There are too many impossible features there. I think it's all a vision. It's a description of what life is like when God's people live together with him and what it will be like through the eternal state forever as we live with him. And uh, he, saw, he saw the temple, the holy place, the sanctuary. And uh, he peeked into the, into the uh, courtyard and he saw the altar. And from the south side of the altar, there was a little trickle of water. And it flowed across the flagstones, out through the eastern gate, and began to flow down toward the Dead Sea. And the man who was with him, who was interpreting the visions to him, said, Come follow me. And he took him about, uh, uh, about 450 meters out into this, this little trickle. And Ezekiel looked around, he was ankle deep. And then he took him another 450 meters, 1,000 cubits, and, and the water was needy. And then he took him another 1,000 cubits, and it was wasty. And then they went another 1,000 cubits, and Ezekiel was over his head. He couldn't swim in it. It was impossible to afford it. Now, here is an impossible river. I've, I've uh, walked a lot of streams and fished a lot of streams. I've never seen a river like that. It just starts with a little trickle, and it gets bigger and bigger and wider and deeper the farther you go. But there are no tributaries and no springs. Nothing is feeding into it except this little trickle out from under the altar. And Ezekiel sees this river flow down through one of the old dry wadis that leads down to the Dead Sea, and, and the water fills the Dead Sea. And it, uh, the, to use the word that Ezekiel uses, it healed the waters of the Dead Sea. And where before there had been no fish, there were great fish that were flopping around. He says, just like the Mediterranean, and trees began to grow, and fruit was produced. And these trees were, were miraculous trees. They produced fruit every month. In other words, any time you went to the tree, there was, there was fruit to eat. And he sees the stream making fresh, making sweet, healing the Dead Sea. It's all a picture, see? It's all a picture of the grace of God. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. From the altar, from the place of sacrifice, there flows a trickle, just a trickle. When, when you come to Christ and you believe in Him, the trickle begins. And it continues to flow. And it gets deeper. And it gets wider. And it freshens your life. And it heals the deadness of it. And it makes you fruitful. And your life, instead of being a barren waste, 
becomes a place of beauty and fragrance. Now that's what God wants to do for you. All you have to do is come to Him. Let's pray. We sang a moment ago uh, the first verse of Like a River Glorious. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. Over all victorious and its bright increase. Perfect, yet it floweth fuller every day. Perfect, yet it groweth deeper all the way. That's what Ezekiel saw. He saw a river that became deeper and fuller, more profound in its influence, the farther, the further one went. And that's true of us. It's true of you. It's true of me. We, we begin by just coming and believing and drinking of Christ. And he will pour out his spirit into our hearts. And that becomes a source for satisfying our thirst and a way of satisfying the needs of others. And the farther on you go, the more of it you sense. Fuller, deeper, richer every day. Lord, how, how awed, how humbled we are by this great picture of your majesty and your grace, of the fullness and the depth of your spirit made available to us because our Lord offered up his life on our behalf. Lord, help us to face the fact that we do not have what it takes to live life no matter how canny and well-trained and disciplined we are, we are never going to be able to cope with life or death. We need you, Lord. Teach us that. Teach us to drink deeply of you and satisfy ourselves with you and with your presence. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.